All right, guys, you are locked on Falcons. I am your host, Aaron Freeman, and today we are doing the scouting report of 2018 third round pick, the defensive tackle from the University of South Florida, that is Deidre Sennheim. You are locked on Falcons, your daily podcast on the Atlanta Falcons, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. All right, guys, you know me. I'm Aaron Freeman, founder of FileFans.com, one of the longest-running Falcon websites on the Internet, of course, the host of this podcast. And, of course, you can find me on Twitter, at FileFans, tweeting about something that's making people mad online. Today is going to be our Deidre Sonat scouting report. We've done now Calvin Ridley, Isaiah Oliver. We're going to go week by week. You know, we got to spread out this hashtag content throughout the summer. We'll get to other stuff uh, as the summer picks up and whatnot. Um, but, uh, we're going to, you know, you guys are going to get your scouting reports once a week. That also means that I, it allows me to procrastinate a little bit with watching the film and, and whatnot and doing other, working on other projects. Speaking of other projects, go over to LockedOnFalcons.com and, and check out my scouting report of, uh, Falcons free agent signing, uh, Terrell McClain. We talked about Terrell McClain on Monday's episode of the podcast this week. We've talked to him about him on uh, both fan talks that we've had earlier this week as well. But uh, if you want to get the idea of what sort of Terrell McClain looks like on film and sort of where he fits in this Falcon scheme and what his strengths and weaknesses are, then you should definitely check out uh, that LockedOnFalcons.com piece, the film review on Terrell McClain. Go check that out right now. It's up now. Um, And because of so much focus on Terrell McClain, a big part of the equation when trying to evaluate Dietrich Sonata, is trying to figure out exactly what his fit in this scheme is going to be. And because I've done so much work on Terrell McClain over the last seven days, um, I've been sort of thinking about this quite a bit. And in previous episodes of this podcast, particularly this week, sort of there was confusion about what things going to happen, how the Falcons are going to deploy McClain, how they're going to deploy Sonata, and sort of how those two guys are sort of similar players in a lot of ways, um, and sort of they seem to be a little bit redundant in a lot of ways um, in terms of how how they fit and in, in, are used in the scheme. But because of I've been thinking about this a, a bit, and again, this is more of an educated guess um, than sort of some insight, some great insight or insider knowledge or anything like that. But an educated guess is my assumption is what the Falcons plan is going into camp and presumably coming out of camp assuming you know nothing crazy happens, is that when they start the season, their base defense, going from generally left to right, strong side to weak side, uh, the strong side defensive end, of course, will be Derek Shelby returning for another year. At your one technique, um, that will be Terrell McLean. At your three technique, that will be Grady Jarrett. And as your Leo, uh, on that weak side defensive end role, that will be Brooks Reed. So you'll have three out of the four guys returning from last year. Last year, you had Jared at the one and Poe at the three, um, and Poe's gone, and now they've replaced him somewhat with Terrell McClain, but in probably a different role. Then when the Falcons substitute for their nickel, their main pass-rushing trio going from left to right is Vic Beasley at the left defensive end spot, Grady Jared at the left defensive tackle spot, Jack Crawford at the right defensive tackle spot, and Tack McKinley at the right defensive end spot. Um, as I explained, I think it was in the Monday's episode when we talked about um, Terrell McClain and talking about the difference between the techniques 
at the D tackle position. I basically said that when I'm evaluating the Falcons, the techniques only really matter in the base defense because you're not necessarily worrying about um, run fits as much in the nickel uh, to the same degree that you're 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 doing so in the base defense. And so that's one of the reasons why I consider it left defensive tackle and right defensive tackle because the techniques can tend to vary. It's basically what side of the line do you line up on and get after the quarterback as opposed to you're a one tech um, or whatever the case may be. So my assumption is, and a lot of the things when we get into the Sanat uh, scouting report improper in, in, in a couple of minutes, is my assumption is where Sanat fits into that equation is in the base defense, he's going to be cross-trained at both the one-tech and the three-tech. Um, and I think at a certain point when the Falcons decide that Grady Jarrett needs a breather, Sanat will come in and play the three-tech. At various points, if the Falcons deem that Terrell McClain needs a breather, Sonat will come in and play the one-tech. Now, part of the confusion was that immediately following the draft, the assumption would have been that Sonat would have played that one-technique role that McClain is now expected to play uh, in the base defense. And so one of the reasons why we, we and I, I'm referring to myself, but uh, the collective we, um, we're confused about this is because Terrell McClain is basically coming in and bumping Sanat out of his role when you would think that the Falcons in that situation with this Sanat had already been established as the one tech in the base defense and they need a three tech so that Grady Jarrett can be healthy and fresh um, to play on those nickel situations uh, where he is going to be, you know, a lot more valuable than in the base defense. So, that was where the confusion lies. Again, this is an assumption. This is an educated guess with how the Falcons are going to deploy their defensive line rotation. As I said on yesterday's fan talk when we talked with Zamir uh, Sabanovich, um, I think I said this, um, there's a lot, you know, they all bleed together. But basically what happens is they, you know, what the Falcons rotation is at the beginning of the year often isn't what their rotation is at the end of the year. So, you know, Sanat, and I think one of the reasons why the Falcons were attracted to McLean is now it doesn't force them to have to play Sanat right away, just in case he's not necessarily ready, which is often the case with rookie defensive linemen. They're often not ready to carve out these massive roles uh, immediately in the, in the you, know, you look at Tack McKinley. Like Tack McKinley, you know, part of that was injury, but it wasn't like Tack was like ready to play, you know, 50 snaps at the outside of the season. Um, and sort of, it was one of those things where you can let those guys develop at their own pace. If they're ready, then, you know, they'll certainly show it and you can play them as much as one. And that's, that's a positive. If they're not ready, then you have other options. You're not stuck like the Falcons were back in 2010 playing Corey Peters as a starter because Parade Jerry wasn't ready. And for various reasons, the Falcons decided not to play Vance Walker, which we will circle back to, uh, as we discuss sort of. Deidre and Sinat's uh, NFL comparisons later on in the episode. So that's I wanted to say that before we jumped headlong into the Sinat profile, and we'll do that in just a bit. But first, I want to plug the Locked On Hawks podcast with host Brad Rowland, part of the NBA side of the Locked On Podcast Network. Catch up with what the Hawks are going to do with their top three lottery pick uh, in June. 
Uh, you can do so on the Lockdown Podcast Network, your NBA team, every day. So when we look at Deidre Sinat, I, I, I think Deidre Sinat is a is a good player. He was a player that I liked um, from the outset, unlike you know other people that were hard on the BJ Hill. They're like, <laughs> I, I you know got to kick that dead horse, right? Um, you know that sort of are now coming around to Deidre Sinat because they didn't do enough homework on this year's D tackles. You know, he was a player that, you know, early on I identified as a possibility, uh, possible target for the Falcons. I think in my February pre-combine mock draft, I had the Falcons taking him in round four uh, over at LockdownFalcons.com. Not saying that to toot my own horn. Okay, partially saying that to toot my own horn. But um, he is one of those players that early on I sort of identified as, yeah, if and when the Falcons are looking for a, a good one tech, he's the type of guy that I think this team would really, really like. And uh, that, that sort of proved true, you know. So we'll get in later into what exactly his, if he, we see him more as a three-tech, um, as we just discussed. But I think one of the reasons why you really like Sanat is his power, is his consistent ability to be disruptive and using that power, lining up in that one-technique position where he's shaded over the center's outside um shoulder or shaded over the the guard's inside shoulder, which is technically a two-eye, but when you're sort of, you know, there's a very subtle difference between a two-eye and a, and a one-tech. Um, you know, someone who knows more probably could explain the, the subtleties that differentiate between them. But in this case, when he's shaded over that center's uh, outside shoulder, that guard's inside shoulder, um, he is um, very effective. Using that power to to sort of knock back the center, especially uh, demand that a gap. Um, you see that disruptive presence up the middle. Um, he's not necessarily a guy like a Babino, like a Grady Jarrett, that's going to do a ton of penetration and making a ton of tackles for loss in the backfield. But he's the type of guy that can sort of control his gap, pin it, you know, disrupt it, re- redirect the the line of scrimmage a yard in the backfield force the running back to have to change direction, which then frees up other players to sort of make the play uh, potentially. And so that's really where Sonat sort of shines in that regard. Um, I think he's, because of his low squat build and his excellent lower body strength, you, you probably heard at various points that he reportedly squatted almost 700 pounds um, at South Florida. That was one of the reasons why it was a little shocking that he didn't have as good a broad jump uh, and as you know, other D tackles uh, in the class at the combine, but um, he's he's a guy that really uses that lower body strength to create leverage and and use his hands to get under the pads of guards and centers, and that allows him to be stout at the point of attack. Um, he's quick for a guy with his size and build. I wouldn't necessarily say he's quick, but he moves a lot quicker than when you probably would initially guess when you sort of look at him. Um, at the outside and see that sort of uh, fire hydrant type of build. Um, I wouldn't call him a quote-unquote true mover, um, but I think all these sort of things are, are relative. I don't think he's going to be a guy that consistently wins with quickness, although you will see instances where he does do a good job using that quickness. He does uh, show that burst up field. He does show that lateral agility that you want to see, that change of direction ability. And I think you saw more of that in college but the, the quality of competition, as you guys well know, jumps a little bit 
from the the American Athletic Conference to the NFL. You know, you're looking at looking at the schedule that UCF played. You, I mean USF. I'm sorry, I'm going to make that mistake too many times. USF played uh, this past season. I think there's only two or three interior offensive linemen that was on USF's schedule last year that are in NFL training camps this summer, none of whom were drafted. Um, and I think only two of those guys were like all conference um, honorable mentions at San Jose State and, and SMU, uh, which aren't necessarily powerhouses when producing NFL offensive linemen, although Wes Schweitzer might disagree with at least one of those schools uh, being not being a powerhouse. But um, so, you know, there's a difference between, you know, going up against a honorable mention all-conference player from the WAC uh, than going up against Travis Frederick or Marquise Pouncey or, or Brandon Brooks or somebody like that. So um, that's why I'm not necessarily as high on his quickness as others may be. Um, I think the, the thing with Sanat is going to be how well he uses his hands. And I think you see flashes of it. And that's certainly a thing that almost consistently, like certain positions, like, you know, when you're trying to make the transition from a wide receiver to the NFL, one of the things that college wide receivers aren't really asked to do that they'll have to do in the NFL is understand how to read coverages and adjust their routes based off of the coverage. You know, running backs, they aren't really asked to pass protect in college to the degree that they need to, or certainly they're not necessarily asked to memorize and, and read complex blitzes that the NFL teams throw at you. And so pass protection is, is a thing for running backs that they have to learn how to do. For defensive linemen in particular, and particularly for defensive tackles, being able to use your hands is that thing that sort of typically you have to be able to do. Because when you're in college, typically, you know, defensive linemen, generally speaking, are more athletic than offensive linemen. And so the defensive linemen are at somewhat an advantage. And in college, as I just illustrated, you're not necessarily going to be facing a who's who of, of great talents throughout your college career. Um, and the guys that make it to the NFL and the guys that start in the NFL, because this is this is the part of the equation I don't think a lot of people appreciate when they're trying to evaluate players and understand that projection from the next level. You're not competing against um, Travis Averill. You know, you you might be competing against those guys in preseason, but when it comes to the actual games and the actual regular season games and postseason games that matter, that's going to allow you to keep your job in the NFL over the course of multiple years, you're not going up against Travis Averill or Sean Harlow. You're going up against Zach Martin. You're going up against um, uh, Jari Evans. You know, you're going up against um, Jason Peters. Those are the guys that you have to be able to compete against in order to earn that money so that you can stay in the league for longer than a couple of years. And I don't think people really understand sort of where that jump in competition is, right? Um, and that's why it takes guys a little bit long to develop. And that's one of the things over the years I've noticed is with defensive linemen in particular, interior defensive linemen, it, you're not, most guys are going to come in well-polished in terms of how they use their hands and what sort of repertoire of moves they use and doing those things. I think with Sanat, he's going to have, that's going to be something that he's going to have to develop over time. You see flashes of it, um, but not necessarily to a consistent enough level in the college level where you're going to think this is going to be something that is going to come, you know, right away at the pro level. You know, I think he likes to use a swim move, um, that swat and swim move. Uh, 
he doesn't have sort of the elite quickness that I don't know if that's going to be as effective in the pros as um, he was able to use it effectively in the, in the college level. Um, he likes to throw out a spin move every now and then. Um, again, I don't know if that's a move that's going to be as effective in, in the pros as it is in college because that's a move that you need space to work with. And he would often throw it out there when he was trying to disengage from a guy on those third downs where he could sort of pin his ears back and get after the quarterback. There will be opportunities for him to do that in the in the pro level, particularly in those third and longs where the Falcons sort of get Vic Beasley and Tack McKinley in those, in those wide techniques on the edge and then sort of put Jarrett and, and maybe Sanat in that three technique where they can sort of pin their ears back and get after the quarterback, uh, you know, when they're up two touchdowns in the fourth quarter on third long or something like that. And he'll have the space to use that swim, that spin move um, more effectively. But outside of that, you're not, you're not going to see him probably throw that out there too, too often. And particularly, you know, you're not going to – please don't do a spin move when you're playing in base defense when you have to actually read what's going on in the backfield so you can man your gap because the minute you throw out that spin, your back is turned to the, the ball – and all of a sudden you lose gap integrity. So I don't know if we're going to see that spin move anytime soon um, with Sinat, but it's something that is in his repertoire. Um, I think his go-to pass rush move, at least in terms of how it projects in the NFL, is going to be that push-pull move where he shoots his hands inside, locks onto the the offensive lineman's uh, pads, yanks him down, causes the offensive lineman to get overextended, and he can just go right by that guy. Um you know, that move is not as effective in the pros as it is in college, typically, because, again, Zach Martin knows how to use his hands. Even a guy like Andy Lavitri knows how to use his hands. So you're not going to be able to throw that move at those guys and, and as effectively as, as you could, you know, John Butler, that is the starting left guard for Texas Tech or Rice or something like that. So... Um, I think, you know, he's got some moves that he can use right away as a pass rusher, as a guy that can disengage from blocks, but that's going to be something that's going to be more important for him. Um, he can get that initial leverage, but he just needs to be a little bit more consistent disengaging from blocks because then that will allow him to make the plays that he is capable of making when he get when he wins in that leverage gap wins on those run fits, but you got to disengage in order to make the tackle because otherwise, you know, Zeke Elliott, it's going to run right by you. Alvin Kamara is going to run right by you. You can you can be in perfect position with the leverage, but those running backs hit the hole so quickly that they're just going to go right past you. And you know if, if you just get an arm out there, you know if particularly some running backs will go down on first contact with an arm tackle, but a lot of them won't. You know, um, and so that's going to be the thing uh, to keep an eye on with Sanat and his development. Um, I got more to say about Sanat's. Uh, pass rushing potential. Already discussed that a little bit, but uh, I should plug LockedOnSports.com. Maybe you guys want to catch up on all the latest going on around the NFL, the NBA, as well as Major League Baseball. Uh, all part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Again, check out LockedOnSports.com. That is your one-stop shop, one-stop hub for all things related to the three major sports on the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team every day. So I think with 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 Sanat's pass rushing potential, um, I think we're, it's going to be interesting to see where he develops there. Because again, I think he has some moves already that he can use, 
to effectiveness, but I don't know if they're honed enough and we'll see which one he develops in the future to sort of be his quote-unquote go-to move. Like, for example, you look at Jonathan Babineau, his go-to move, his favorite move was the club rip, where he would just get tacked that outside shoulder of the guard, do the, the, the club, and then rip under, turn that corner, and get after the quarterback. Um, that's a favorite among, you know, pass rushers. And so, you know, I don't know if Sanat has quite the quickness to pull that off. Um, you'll see it, you know, occasionally maybe, but not on a consistent level like like a Babino who's been able to build a very long and successful career doing that type of stuff. Um, I think I think he'll get there eventually. I, I'm just sort of curious, sort of where where his max potential is, um, because he doesn't have that go to move. I don't necessarily know if there's one move in particular that's going to be consistently effective for him as a pass rusher. And I think the the concern I have with Sanat is like he's quick for his size, but he's probably not quick on the level of, say, a Grady Jarrett or a Jonathan Babineau. He's powerful, but I don't know if he's on the power level of, of a guy like a Hageman or a Poe. And I think one argument could be made that he's sort of like the best of both worlds, but I don't necessarily buy into that like I think he's just kind of good enough at both but not great at any and it's sort of the jack of all trades the master of none and I think generally speaking I don't want to sound like I'm writing off Sanat's potential but generally speaking when you're that in the NFL that doesn't lead to being a highly highly successful player it just means that you can have a solid career as as a role player, more you know, like you can be a really good role player, but you're not necessarily going to have that high level starting potential, and that's sort of where, I, in terms of talking about Sanat's pass rushing potential and sort of where his future, or at least when we're talking about his upside, you know, if he's quote unquote only a run defender, he's only a two down player, you know that that only goes so far. Um, that's not necessarily something that a team is going to be willing to pay a huge, huge premium on unless you're Snacks Harrison, who is by far the most dominant run defender we've seen in the league for like the last four or five years. Um, You have to be at that level, I think, in order for that to sort of be a quote-unquote lucrative career. You know, you can play in the league, certainly, if if you don't have to be Snacks. And that suggests that you can't play in the league for 10 or 12 years if you're not as good as Snacks Harrison. The point I'm trying to make is, that's more of a of a role player that that winds up becoming more of a player like a Terrell McLean um, than say a a you know think of an example I can't think of one <laughs> um, but like I think that's sort of where my questions are when it comes to Sanat um, if he if he can't be that reliable pass rusher I think sort of looking at his ceiling at least for my eyes in terms of where he could be as a pass rusher. I see him as a guy that at his max could be a guy that could get you three or five sacks a year. I think he's a guy that at his max could average one or two pressures a game, which is good for an interior defensive lineman, um, is okay for an edge rusher. Uh, that's more of like your third edge rusher than your starter. Um, typically, you're, you want your, your third edge rusher, or your starting edge rusher to get something co- closer to three or four uh, pressures a game. Um, but in the case of a, an interior guy like Sanat, I think he could get to that one or two benchmark. Um, I think probably he's probably the better part of 
two or three years away from that. Again, because I think a lot of that depends on him being able to develop his hands and his technique and his pass rush moves to a level. Because again, what I said with him being the jack of all trades, like I think what's going to have to happen for him to reach his max potential as a pass rusher is he's going to be able to be like, okay, this is the guy that I can face that I can use my power and I can whoop this guy with my power. Or this is the guy where, no, I want to throw my quickness out. And that's something that takes time. That takes you know development and time and understanding, okay, what are my strengths? What are my opponent's weaknesses? That's just not something that you're going to have coming into the league right away. So I, that's why I think like when people sort of are talking up Sanat's pass rushing ability as this every down player, I'm like, he could get there. I, I'm not going to say, you know, who knows what he's going to be three or four years from now. Certainly, like, I'll, I'll admit I was much lower on Grady Jarrett than probably most people, or not much lower. I was a little lower on Grady Jarrett's potential than other people were. Um, so I, I could certainly be underestimating Deidre tonight. Like when I say lower, I was like, yeah, he's a mid-third round talent as opposed to this top 50 talent that other people build him as. I think his career so, so far in three years, he's played more like the top 50 talent that other people thought he was rather than the sort of early to mid third round talent that I was thinking he was um, a top 75 talent. So um, I, I think we'll, we'll have to see. And I think part of the reason why I can't get fully on board with the Sanat um, pass rushing potential is like when he was, when he, he didn't get the as many opportunities to sort of pin his ears back and get after the quarterback. Now, in some games, you can watch him, you know, pin his ears back and get after the quarterback and look really good. Like the bowl game against Texas Tech is a good example of that. Um, against East Carolina, those the center and the guard for East Carolina just couldn't handle him. And so anytime he pinned his ears back, he really wrecked those guys. But then there's other games that he played where he, he would get the opportunity to pin his ears back, and he wasn't that effective. Um, and part of that may be due to the fact that he's played at a one tech and that's not necessarily a, a, a advantageous pass rushing position because really your, your easiest path to the quarterback is trying to split a double team. And if you're trying to split a double team, that means you're often getting blocked by two guys as opposed to one guy. And it's harder to beat two guys than it is one guy as I'm, as I'm sure you can guess. But I think part of the, and I think the question with Sanat is when he gets the opportunities in Atlanta, and this is the unanswered question with him. Will he be as effective when he pins his ears back? And I don't really know the answer. And I would liken it a little bit to sort of when Keanu Neal came out and we were looking at him and his potential as a man cover safety. He didn't play a lot of man coverage at Florida. And so it was a question mark. It wasn't that we could say, oh, he can't do this. It's just he didn't get the opportunities to do this. So it's an unknown. And it was part of the reason why myself and others weren't as high on Keanu Neal at the time because it was like, this is kind of a big question mark. And if he's going to be this first round pick, you kind of don't want to have this, you know, hole, so to speak, in terms of his skill set where you don't really know if he can do this thing. Because if he can't, then he's not worth a first round pick. But if he can't, you know, then he's he's still a good pick. It's still a really solid second round pick, but it's going to be hard to live up to that value if he can't do this. And with you not knowing that, that remains a question. So I think that's a little bit with Sanat. And I think part of it is because I you didn't really get a, an idea of 
of sort of what he was in the East-West Shrine game. And I think a lot of the people that are buying Sadat's stock are buying it based off of the practice reports and the couple of clips that you can see floating around online about him going one-on-ones against the, in the East-West Shrine game. And I think, you know, I personally have a little bit of difficulty putting too much stock into that for various reasons. One, I didn't see it. As far as I'm concerned, you know, my opinion is the only reliable opinion. I can't necessarily base too many things off of practice reports because beauty is somewhat in the eye of the beholder. Like you can find various reports online where people say Josh Allen was amazing at the Senior Bowl. And you can find various reports online that Josh Allen was terrible at the Senior Bowl. And it's sort of that subjectivity. It's not to be like, oh, the East-West Shrine reports that say Deidre Sinat was like the MVP of the defensive line practices. Or they're lying because they're saying that. It's just it's not necessarily as reliable as seeing it yourself. And so it's hard to put too much stock in. You put some stock in it, certainly. You put some stock in it. But I can't necessarily just go full bore. Like, Deidre Sinat has this amazing pass rush potential because of some practices I never got to see. And I can only really base my opinion off of what I saw in the games. And in the games, he has pass rushing ability, but I don't know if he has high-level pass rushing potential. Um, and, and part of the problem was he didn't get to play in the East-West Ryan because he had a, a knee injury, and you saw guys like Foley Fadakasi and P.J. Hall sort of step up and really shine in that game, and maybe if he had played in that game, he would have been you know, you know, the star of that game, and we'd be having a very different conversation about his potential, and maybe he could have been the quote-unquote second, late second-round talent like a P.J. Hall, a P.J. Hall, I'm sorry, was, was being talked about. Um, the other thing, the reason why I can't put too much stock in those things is the one-on-ones in those all-star games are sort of tailored, um, to be a decisive advantage for the defensive players as opposed to the offensive linemen. Um, and that's why guys like Zach Martin or an Eric Fisher in particular can go to the senior bowl as sort of this mid to late first round pick. And in the case of Fisher come out of it as the 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 front runner to be the number one pick. Um just because it's so teams know that if you're an offensive lineman that d- plays really well, you know, in those practices, then that really does mean something uh important or or, or is could be a strong indicator of your abilities. Uh you can argue that in Fisher's struggles struggles over the years suggest that it may not be the end all be all. Um now here's the thing I will have to say about that, though, is the Falcons do put a lot of stock in that because one of the things that we've noticed over the years and one of the reasons why, you know, you know, call me crazy, but I don't put a ton of stock in their player visits. We track them because it's interesting, but we don't necessarily say this is their draft board is when you when you actually look at it, when you actually study the Falcons draft, as opposed to just saying, oh, they they drafted four guys that they worked out before. Um, when you look at the 18 seniors that the Falcons have drafted under Dan Quinn over four years, 13 of those 18 guys participate in all-star games. Um, and so, you know, the Falcons really do put a lot of stock in these all-star games because, you know, Dan Quinn, you know, what are the three B's? Ball, brotherhood, and battle. And the battle part of it is the whole compete things. And he likes seeing those guys compete in practice and that tells him whether or not those guys are going to be able to go to battle. And when they talk to these all-star games, and that's the other thing about the interest tracker uh, that people don't really realize is teams talk to everybody that's at the all-star game. We just don't track it because it's like kind of like known. 
And it's just because the only time you hear about those like dozen or so guys that their the team showed interest is is because some reporter was standing there and saw a person with a team logo on his shirt or on his hat talking specifically to that player. And they said, oh, I saw the Lions talking to this guy. I saw the Falcons talking to this guy. But over the course of that week, teams will get an, an opportunity to talk and interact with every single, you know, all 90 or 120 or how many people at these All-Star games there are. All right. So it's one of those things where it's like they show interest in that's one of the reasons why you got to sort of pump the brakes a little bit on the interest stuff. But that's a rant for another day. Um, I think when we look at sort of, I guess, you know, this is the point where I'm going to go on a little bit on my rant. I'll, I'll try to keep it brief before we get to the, the comparison for, for Sonat. But it's like part of the reason why I can't necessarily go too high on Sonat's potential is I think this is the difference between me and other people is other people will look at that one clip or, or, or whatever, or read this one report. And because they aren't in the practice habit of doing the, the work themselves, they'll just assume things. Oh, I heard this about a guy and I understand it's true. Or I saw this one clip of, of Sanat working over the center. And that means he has a lot of passwords potential potential because our brains fill in the blanks. And this is part of the phenomenon that I've spoken uh, about a number of times when sort of the splash plays or the highlight reel sort of skews perception because what ends up happening is your brain fills in, you see one play, one rep of practice, which could have been Sanat's best rep of practice or could have been his worst rep of practice, but your brain sees that one rep and then fills in the blank for the rest of the, the reps. And it's the same thing with highlights or splash plays, is that you see this one really positive play or in some cases a really negative play and your brain fills in the rest, assuming that the rest of the game or whatever, all the other the other 60 plays in the, over the course of the game went the same way. And you sort of have these out-of-whack perceptions. and But it's one of the reasons why if you don't watch film, one of the things, the valuable things about watching film is it, it sort of unlearns that perspective or at least helps you do a better job unlearning that. Not necessarily that you fully ever fully get there, but you understand that one play out of context is just one play in 63. And it teaches you to consider all 63 plays as opposed to just one play. But when you don't watch film, you can fall into that trap. And that's probably one of the reasons why, you know, in past episodes or on Twitter, I don't sound like I'm as high on Deidre Sanat as other people are, um, simply because I'm not looking at one practice rep and saying, oh, that's what he's going to be. It's like, no, that's just the best practice rep. I can show you the best play of any player and make that guy look like a superstar. Um, if You know, you just got to dig through tape long enough, you can do so. Um, so that's the thing. And so with Deidre and Sonat, like a lot of it is a little bit of an unknown. That's what I'm saying. That's my hedge, basically, is, is what I'm getting to. My hedge is there's a element. So if we get, you know, four or five years and Deidre and Sonat is everything that those people uh, or, you know, whoever thinks he is going to be in terms of reaching that ceiling, it's probably, you know, the the reason is because, okay, all that East West Shrine stuff was indeed legit. Um, if he doesn't, it's because, you know, he was more of the player of what he was on film as opposed to what he was in that practice game. But the player on film is a good player. 
Now, we'll wrap up here and talk about sort of where the player I compare him to. I, I still don't really like the Grady Jarrett comparison. I, I, I think it's a little bit of a lazy comp. Um, I think it's because people don't really have another good basis of comparison. Again, I think the player that if you go back and you watch the film of him, the player that Sinat more resembles is Vance Walker. Um, I think because Vance Walker played last played with the Falcons, what, like six years ago? Um, people don't really have a basis of comparison. Again, this is another one of my egotistical, arrogant things, but, you know, I was one of the few people out there actually watching film back in 2012, uh, probably the only person, um, at least that you know, uh, that doesn't get paid to watch film that was actually doing it. And so I think Vance Walker is a good comp for Deidre Sinat, particularly uh, sort of with what we expect Deidre Sinat to be as early in his career. And I think sort of what Vance Walker was towards the more advanced stages of his career is kind of where Deidre Sinat's floor is. So I, I do think not necessarily he has the same floor as Vance Walker, who is a seventh round pick, um, but he has a same floor as maybe a third year Vance Walker, who was a seventh round pick who had developed at that point uh, somewhat. But I think sort of where we will see Sinat potentially reach um, by the time he gets to his third or fourth year is more like what the player Vance Walker was when he left Atlanta. And and we talked about this in previous episodes, but I'll go over it again, is one of the issues that I had when Vance Walker was here is I think over the course of his four years in Atlanta, playing beside guys like Babineau and Jerry and Corey Peters, Vance Walker, to me, was the second most effective defensive tackle for the Falcons after uh, Babineau, but didn't get the opportunities that guys like Jerry and Corey Peters got, um, I think, personally, because he was not as highly drafted as those guys, but maybe he didn't practice as hard. Maybe the Falcons didn't like his swagger Vance persona on Twitter. I have no idea. There's a lot of information I don't know, so I can only guess that. But... um, and I, so I don't think Vance Walker was able to reach his full potential in Atlanta before he left. And then when he went to Oakland in 2013, and then when he played in Kansas City and Denver, when he was doing his AFC West tour, um, he was able to sort of reach his full potential because he was getting more opportunities to play. And I sort of think that's where Deidre Sinat's going to be. Um, and we won't have to wait or we won't miss it like we did with, with Vance Walker um, due to decision, you know, stupid decisions to keep Parade Jerry for one more year that didn't, you know, I don't want to go there. Um, <laughs> I'll just say that when they were purging contracts in 2012, like John Abraham, after 2012, like John Abraham, Dante Robinson, Michael Turner, I don't know why they didn't purge the Parade Jerry contract, but that's a conversation, you know, that's a that's a six-year grudge or a five-year grudge or, or whatever that I still hope. Um, so I think that's really where Dijon Sonat's potential is. I think he has potential to be better than Vance Walker. And that's going to be where sort of that whole, what I was referring to earlier, that East-West Shrine stuff, um, where that potential as a pass rusher. The interesting thing about Vance Walker was um, in Atlanta, he was primarily a one tech uh, that, you know, spelled guys like Peters when, when he needed a rest and whatnot. Um, Once he left Atlanta, he became much more of a three tech and that sort of showcased his pass rushing ability a little bit more and he often was a sub-package situational pass rusher on the interior for some of those teams that played 4-3 and, and Kansas City and Denver, who played a, a 3-4, or at least Kansas City played a 3-4. Denver, when they went to their sub-package, had a four-man unit because Malik Jackson would come inside. Um, but 
he would play more of a three tech uh, in their sub packages. And so I do wonder if sort of Sanat can do more of that as time wears on. So I think Sanat is a good player. I think he'll be a valuable rotation piece. I think he can, he'll eventually start. Uh, my expectation is he'll be a rotational player this year. I think with McLean being under a one-year contract, uh, unless McLean has a monster season or something like that, we'll see. Um, my expectation is that the Falcons will sort of, okay, McLean, you were a one-year stopgap so that we could develop Sanat. Then next year, Sanat will be plugged into the starting lineup uh, beside Grady Jarrett. We'll see where his pass rushing ability is at at that point and if he's going to carve out a significant role in the nickel sub package at that point or do the Falcons go out and sign or draft another player that can be more of that guy and sort of keep Deidre Sanat as more of a third defensive tackle as opposed to a, a number two defensive tackle. I think as a third defensive tackle, he's going to be great in that role. I do think there's a little bit less to be desired as a number two guy, just because I don't know if he's going to be that every down, and, and by that I mean that pass rushing guy that's going to be a reliable pass rusher, um, you know, for forty plus uh, plays each each and every week. So that's the one big question I have with Dietrich. Not time will tell. Um, I think you know, again, he'll be at the very least a very solid rotational player. At at best, he can be a solid starter, and that's where maybe the the Grady Jarrett comparisons come in, not necessarily where Grady Jarrett was this year, but maybe 2016 Grady Jarrett, like that's maybe his ceiling, but more of a power player um, than than what Jarrett is, relying on that quickness and being more of a disruptive player. So again, I, th- I still think Vance Walker is the best comp, but we'll see how it goes. And I hope you guys appreciate this. We'll be back again next week. Uh, we have the Edo Smith uh, scouting report next week. Uh, we'll have at least one fan talk, and certainly we will s- try to get more people on to also talk about this Falcons draft class. In in the meantime, I know I promised those um, those episodes, um, and I probably should not procrastinate on those anymore. So let's see if we can get some of those scheduled uh, coming up as as soon as next week, and uh, we'll start to pivot a little bit towards um, positional reviews and training camp battles and. Um, as we get a little bit later in the draft and I have more time to watch some of these undrafted guys, we'll do what we did last year, which sort of maybe have two episodes, one devoted to the offense, one devoted to defense, talking about sort of where these undrafted guys fit and giving you a general roundup of some of these guys. But you can expect that in the coming weeks, uh, in, in the next month and whatnot. So, uh, <coughs> I'm starting to lose my voice. Sorry guys. So, um, that's it. Um, until then. You are Locked On Falcons, your daily Atlanta Falcons podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.